Let's uh, turn to Genesis chapter 8 and 9. We looked at chapter 8 last week. And uh, this week I want to pick up with chapter 9. Um, but uh, before we read uh, our passage for today, uh, let's just go back, kind of glance back through chapter 8 there and try and remember some of the things that we talked about last week. What What things come to your mind that that you uh, remember from last week or that you've been thinking about this week? Well, we didn't talk about it, but I was kind of thinking about the dove and why in there it specifically said the dove was a female twice. And I'm like, no, that doesn't... Why that detail when there's so much generality? And I don't know, I may be reading something into it, but I, got, I was thinking doves are known in the Bible for I mean, they're being mates for life. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking, uh, what happened to the male? You know, they sent out one and never came back. And, and I thought perhaps the male was set aside to be the sacrifice of a clean animal. And uh, then you don't see a dove coming again until the dove lights on Christ. Hmm. Uh, like that. And I thought, well, perhaps that was symbolic of the, oh. the male was the sacrifice. Wow. And the other was the spirit. Yeah. I don't know, that may be reading something into it. But well, wonder, it's a neat, an, neat analogy, though. Yeah, yeah, that's good thought. That's good thoughts. Anything else? I mean, you brought up that it didn't seem that God and Noah, there was much conversation going on during that whole time. So it, like it, I mean, it, it's not like he could walk off on God, is it? Yeah, yeah. We we talked about the the temptation that exists when we go for a long time without hearing from God. You're excused. That's okay. Okay, we will. Uh, <laughs> we talked about the temptation that exists when you don't hear from God for a long time to begin to wonder if you've heard correctly or whatever. And and I think Jim made a good point last week that. And, and I didn't mean to imply by the things I said that I thought that Noah was living in some kind of puddle of despair while he was on the ark there. Uh, I think he was a man of faith, and I think he did remember uh, the things that God had done and how God had directed him to the ark, and then the flood had come, just as God had said. But in my own experience, even when I have times of you know and uh, times of darkness and times of difficulty. And, and when I walk through those times basically by faith, there are, there are still those times when the enemy comes to me and tempts me, uh, tempts me to think twice about what God said or to wonder did I really hear what God said. And I hear that voice in my mind. And the point that I was trying to make last week is, is to, for us to call to mind at those moments when Satan tempts us to doubt and to wonder, to call to mind what he tells us there in verse 1 of chapter 8 that God remembered Noah. And uh, so uh, so I think there's a lesson for us there even with a man of great, obviously great faith and righteousness as Noah was. So, Anything else? Now Noah demonstrated his life of faith whenever he, one of the first things, well the first thing recorded yeah. when he got off the ark is he, he worshipped, built an altar, he did yeah. Like you mentioned, uh, you would want to go build a house. You'd want to go set up a shelter, go, you know, 
get the crops in the ground. Yeah. yeah. But he demonstrated again his, his life of faith. And then the other thing you talked about, which was, I think, important to remember, we have times where we question mm-hmm. what God's doing. And Noah was testing, you know, you from the time the, the ark hit something until the time he actually saw dry land. It was quite a long time. Yeah. And uh, I was thinking of uh, King David in the Psalms. He, he questioned a lot. Yeah and wondered, you know, where, God, what's going on here? And, and I think it's demonstrated for us that it's not a wrong thing to do. Yeah. The question is, it's what do we do with those questions? Yeah. And where do we go for the answers? Is yeah. yeah. God wants us to go to him in faith yeah. and wait. Yeah. And that, that can be hard sometimes. Absolutely. And that, one of the things that struck me last week, and you just brought it up again, is that, priority of worship. He comes off the ark. He has so much that needs to be done right now. You know, and it's the same way in our lives, isn't it? We have so many demands. You know, we get up in the morning, there's so much that needs to get done. Are we willing to follow Noah's example and stop and take time to worship God? What was the effect of Noah's worship we talked about last week? God was pleased with it. And the word there, actually, it's translated in the New American, it's translated that the, the sacrifice ascended into heaven as a soothing aroma in the New American. That's actually a fairly accurate translation of the word. And in fact, in, in, uh, I think in Strong's it lists uh, among the uh, possible words that you could use to translate that word. It used the word tranquilizing. <laughs> and, we, and we recall that that God was deeply troubled, that God was very angry, and that God was pained, it told us in chapter 6, at the sin that he saw. And so God was experiencing, if we can use an anthropomorphic term there in reference to God, God was experiencing this, this great anguish and pain over man's sin. And now, of course, since we know that God does not delight in the death of any man, but rather that he would repent and live, we know that he's also experiencing great anguish and pain not only over the sin of man, but then over the subsequent destruction of man that was necessary. And so in all of this, this pain that God is experiencing or feeling, if you will, this sacrifice of Noah comes to him as a soothing aroma. Here is a man who worships him. Here is a man who has survived the flood by the grace of God and he he comes out and he makes this sacrifice and he's saying to God, I want to be your fictive kin. I want to be I want to be your child. I want to be your adopted son. I want to be in covenant with you. And this comes to God after all that has happened. This comes to God as a soothing aroma and we'll we'll follow up on that as we as we go more today. What else you remember from last week? Yes, sir. Well, back on what we were talking about, soothing aroma and pleasing stench was heaven. You're describing amazing things of the contrast. The stench of mankind that existed before the flood. And then now it's talking in terms of soothing or tranquilizing. I got to think about in our terms, okay. You know, think of some of the worst things you've ever smelled. And then you think of some, something really pleasant, mm-hmm. like a mm-hmm. garden or 
Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Or exercising those senses that way. Yeah, yeah. It's neat, isn't it? And it's a lesson to us of the value of our own worship of God. You know how so oftentimes, you know, our prayer lives are full of all the things where we need God to do and we're concerned about and they're burdening us or worrying us or whatever. And, we, and He wants us to bring those things to Him. He wants us to pray about those things. In fact, He commands us to do so. But... But the question that I pondered last week, I was thinking about last week as I was getting ready for the lesson was, do we as individuals, do we take the time in our prayer life to worship? Just to tell God that we love Him. To tell God the things about Him that we, that we think are wonderful and that we think are good. And just to praise and worship Him. That those things come to Him as a soothing aroma. And it's a tremendous privilege. Think about the privilege that we have as mere human beings, as mere created beings, to bring pleasure and soothingness, uh, is that a word, <laughs> to the heart of God. It's just an awesome thought. You know, it's, it's really beyond my ability to totally process it theologically, but it's a, it's a pretty remarkable idea to think that, that if I take time to worship, it really makes a difference to God. <laughs> so. Yes. Yes. Yes, and we'll get into that today because that's a very significant connection. Okay. Yes, Ruth. Yes, exactly right. And man's, man's sinful condition remains. The, the innate sinful nature remains in Noah and his sons, as we'll see uh, quite graphically next week when we get into uh, the next part of the story. Um, and then there's one other thing we talked about last week. It's important for us to go back and think about because we'll bring it up again today. When he says God remembered Noah there in verse 1 of chapter 8, what does he mean by that? Okay. 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 We need to re- we need to keep that in mind when the scripture talks about God remembering in this sense, and he, and he does a number of times throughout, particularly the Old Testament, he talks about God remembering Noah or God remembering Rachel or uh, God remembering uh, different uh, individuals throughout the Old Testament story. That it's not that. It's not that that individual has slipped his mind. It's not that Noah floating out there in the ark on this vast sea that covers the entire earth, that God was so preoccupied with the flood and with the destruction and with it, that Noah skipped, slipped his mind and then after, uh, after several months got, oh yeah, that's right, there's Noah out there. It's not that kind of thing at all, okay? But the idea of God remembering when he talks about it, and we'll see it explicitly expressed this way in the passage we're looking at today, that what it means is that God is remembering His covenant, i.e. that God is acting. So when it says that God remembered Noah, it doesn't mean that Noah slipped his mind and suddenly go, oh yeah, there's Noah out there. I better not forget Noah. But rather, that at that point, God begins to act and carry out the covenant promise that He has made to Noah or to whoever else it may be referring to as, <clears throat> as you go through the Old Testament. 
So keep in mind that when it says God remembered, another way to think about it is to think God acted on His covenant promise. Okay? So for some period of time, God does not appear to be acting. God, from our perspective, from Noah's perspective, it doesn't look like God is, uh, is, is acting according to the promise. But the promise has not, been, has not slipped God's mind. And there comes a point just the right time, the appointed time, when it is the right time for God to act according to His covenant promise and He acts according to His promise, according to His covenant, according to the obligation that He has taken upon Himself. He acts at that point and at that point the Scripture says God remembered. That's how it describes God acting is that God remembered. So keep that in mind as we move forward. Okay, let's pick it up at the uh, end of uh, 8 there, verse 20, and we'll read down through chapter 9 and and uh, talk about chapter 9 today. <clears throat> then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took every clean animal and of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. The Lord smelled the soothing aroma and the Lord said to himself, I will never again curse the ground on account of man, for the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. And I will never again destroy every living thing as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest and cold and heat and summer and winter and day and night shall not cease. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the terror of you will be upon every beast of the earth and on every bird of the sky with everything that creeps on the ground and all flesh, of, all fish of the sea. Into your hand they are given." Every moving thing that is alive shall be food for you. I shall give all to you as I gave the green plant. Only you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. Surely I will require your lifeblood. From every beast I will require it. And from every man, from every man's brother, I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For the image, in the image of God he made man." As for you, be fruitful and multiply. Populate the earth abundantly and multiply in it. Then God spoke to Noah and to his sons with him, saying, Now behold, I do establish my, I myself do establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the cattle, and every beast of the earth with you of all that comes out of the ark, even every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you and all flesh shall never again be cut off by the water of the flood. Neither shall there again be a flood to destroy the earth. God said, this is the sign of the covenant which I am making between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all successive generations. I set my bow in the cloud and it shall be for a sign of a covenant between me and the earth. It shall come about when I bring a cloud over the earth that the bow will be seen in the cloud. And I will remember my covenant which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And never again shall the water become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the cloud, then I will look upon it to remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, This is the sign of the covenant which I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. Okay, we'll stop there. It gives us plenty of work to do today. Okay. Uh, so what we have here in uh, the end of chapter 8 and the beginning of chapter 9 
is we have the establishment of what's called the Noahic covenant. In other words, God's covenant with Noah. And we call it God's, we call it the Noahic covenant or God's covenant with Noah. But as we see in the passage we just read, it's really not a covenant just with Noah, but with whom? Pardon? Okay, all creation for how long? Forever, for as long as it exists, okay? So this is God's covenant creation until the consummation, uh, uh, excuse me, God's, uh, God's covenant uh, uh, with creation uh, until uh, the consummation of all things, okay? Another thing about this covenant we'll notice as we go through it is that it's a unilateral covenant. We've been talking a lot about covenants because we're going to be dealing with covenants as we go through Genesis. So we've been talking a lot about covenants. And we talk about covenants being an agreement between two parties and they agree to mutual uh, obligations and responsibilities and things like that. But this covenant is different in this respect that it is unilateral. If you'll notice, there's nothing incumbent upon man in this covenant. The entire responsibility is on God. And we'll, we'll look at that as we're uh, going through it. Uh, the other thing, and, and somebody already pointed this out in our, our review time, is that you'll notice that the, even though it's a unilateral covenant in the sense that the, all the responsibility is on God, the covenant was really initiated in response to Noah's sacrifice. So Noah comes off the ark and the first thing he does is he gathers all these clean animals and he makes this awesome sacrifice to God that is so pleasing and so soothing to God that God in his heart, and that's what we noticed in, uh, there at the end of, of chapter 8, when God makes this, prom- this first promise or pledge that there won't be this worldwide destruction again, it's a promise he makes to himself. Okay? So it's first his response to the sacrifice, to the worship of Noah, that he, he just responds with this, this, okay, man is sinful and I recognize that man is sinful and, and I am going to spare man and I'm not going to do again what I have just done. I will never do that again. And, and so there is this determination in his heart which then results subsequently in the covenant promise that he makes, uh, uh, that he articulates to Noah. So it's first just something that he says within himself and then ultimately he says it to Noah. So it illustrates very clearly that there is some sense, and theologically I don't think I can explain it all, but there is some sense in which God's covenant promise that he makes to Noah here is precipitated by Noah's worship to him. And that's one of the reasons why I suggest to you that when Noah came off the ark and he made the sacrifice, that Noah was really trying to do this. That he remembered God's promise that God had made back in chapter 6 when God introduced the whole idea of the ark to Noah and told Noah he had to build the ark, he had promised Noah, he said, I will establish, future tense, I will establish my covenant with you. And I think that when Noah's coming off the ark, he's thinking, now is a good time for this covenant. So Noah begins to cut the barit. Noah begins to cut the covenant. He makes the sacrifices in the hopes that God will respond with whatever this covenant is that he promised Noah that he would give him. Okay? Uh, there's a little bit of speculation there. I, I, I wouldn't uh, argue that dogmatically, but it appears to me that that's what's going on. Clearly then, God does respond. Okay. Now, this chapter 9 is really a significant passage. You remember when we were back in chapter 1 and chapter 2 uh, that there were just so many foundational principles that, are, that we see in Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2 that have to do with just the whole 
order of creation and how things are going to be and how God expects things will operate. And he talks about uh, he creates uh, Adam and Eve and he gives them certain responsibilities and he gives them certain promises and he gives them certain blessings. And he, and he basically kind of sets up the world the way he wants the world to run. And so when we were looking at Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, we saw a lot of things that are really foundational to human society and human nature and, and, and all that sort of thing. Okay. So Genesis 1 particularly and Genesis 2 are very foundational passages for understanding uh, a, what we might call a Christian worldview. Okay. Chapter 9 of Genesis is similar in that respect. It's, it's, it's uh, really foundational to a lot of things that we, uh, a lot of things that have to do with our, with our worldview, so to speak. How we understand the world is to operate. How we understand people are to function and relate to one another and relate to God and that sort of thing. And it's really interesting as you go through the passage that there are a number of very contemporary issues that Genesis 9 deals with. And I've just listed several of them here. It deals with the question, obviously, of capital punishment. It deals with the concept of human government. It deals with the issue of conservation and environmentalism. It deals with the question of vegetarianism versus meat-eating. It deals with the issue of population control. Okay? Those are all things which you may not, when we read through the passage, they may not have jumped out at you, but as you reflect on the passage, you go... Well, God really has something to say about that. You know, it's not just up for us to kind of speculate and think, well, you know, this is what we think about government or this is what we think about uh, whether or not we should eat meat or, or whatever. But God actually has something to say about that. Okay? So uh, hopefully we'll touch on most, if not all, of those things as we go through it today. Uh, the first thing I want to point out to you uh, in chapter 9. Uh, picking it up in verse 1, it says, God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the terror of you will be on every beast of the earth and on every bird of the sky with everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish and sea. Into your hand they are given. Every moving thing that is alive shall be food for you and I will give all to you as I gave to the green plant. And then he goes on about the restrictions that he puts on that. And what's one of the things that's interesting about Noah's just come off the boat. He's made the sacrifice. Okay? And, and now God comes and God's getting ready to introduce to him this covenant that he's, that he's going to make with Noah. But preliminary to that, as he leads into the establishment of the covenant, God basically restates some of the things that he stated clear back in Genesis 1 right after he created Adam and Eve. Okay. So, in other words, you had the creation in Genesis chapter 1, the beginning of life. Now, after the flood, we kind of have things starting all over again, right? We're starting now from, from one family again and we're starting uh, basically from scratch and we have just this handful of animals that have come off the ark. So, everything's starting over again. And in this new beginning, if you will, God restates some of the things that he said to Adam and Eve uh, clear back in the garden. Okay. And, uh, and uh, two things in particular that are similar between Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 9 is that God gives a blessing to Noah and to his sons that is similar, virtually identical to the blessing he gave to Adam and Eve. And that is what? 
Okay? The blessing of procreation. So God gives a blessing upon Noah and his sons and, uh, and, and, and virtually all of the creation there. He gives a blessing of procreation. That's exactly what he did back in Genesis chapter 1. Remember, uh, when God created the, the creatures back in Genesis chapter 1, He says He blessed them and told them to multiply. And then when He created Adam and Eve, it says He blessed them and He told them to multiply and to fill the earth. So one of the characteristics of Genesis 1 that we see repeated in Genesis 9 is this idea of the blessing of procreation. Okay? What's this, what is something else that God set in order in Genesis chapter 1 that He appears to kind of reiterate here? Okay, that man is given the responsibility to subdue the earth. Okay, and so he's very he's very specific in Genesis chapter one with Adam and Eve that he he commanded them, he instructed them to subdue the earth. All the creation was to be under their dominion. Okay, and we talked quite a bit about that when we were back in Genesis chapter one. Now he's doing that again here in chapter nine. He's reiterating to Noah that man has dominion over the animals. He says, I've given them into your hand. Okay, So there is this very clear order of things that man is superior to the animals and man is to rule over and to have dominion over the animals. Okay, So those are the similarities. But when God did that with Adam and Eve in the garden, there was no sin. Okay, And of course, shortly after that, Sin enters into the picture and it corrupts mankind and pollutes mankind and, and the whole creation order gets all distorted and messed up. Okay, So now as God is beginning again, and I think as Ruth pointed out, or somebody as one of you pointed out, we, st- we still have present now after the flood, we have the sin nature. So God has dealt with the sin, but the sin nature remains, so there's still going to be sin. And so now as God starts things over again, in this whole issue of the dominion of man over creation, there's a new element that we didn't have before. What is that element? Fear. Okay? Fear. The fear or the tear. Okay? So apparently, you know, we don't see any of that in Genesis chapter 1 or in the first chapters of Genesis. So I don't understand. I don't know. I can't, couldn't tell you exactly what the relationship was between man and the creatures. Uh, before the fall, uh, before the flood, because obviously I wasn't there, and and we don't have any record in Scripture of of what that relationship was like. But very clearly, something that is not articulated in those first eight chapters now is articulated in chapter nine, and that is this fear. And he and he really stresses it. Notice how he says, "The fear of you, the terror of you, shall be upon all the creatures." Okay. So now this new element of fear enters into the picture. And this is apparently necessary so that man can continue the dominion in a world that's now contaminated by sin. Okay. Now, in conjunction with this fear of the animals and in, in this relationship of man to the animals, there's also another added dimension. And what is that? Mm-hmm. Leave it to Hal to answer that one. <laughs> we can eat them. Okay. Now, in, in back in early in Genesis, we saw that God gave all the green plants for food. And there was nothing said about the animals. But it's now it's very clear that God is saying that He's also giving to us the animals to eat. Okay. And He says He's giving us the animals to eat just as He gave us the green plants to eat. So as far as God is concerned, 
it is as permissible for man to eat animals as it is for man to eat wheat or corn or or uh, mangoes or <laughs> whatever you like to eat as far as the vegetable uh, kingdom is concerned. Okay, so so God now has established this new order, and in this new order, it is permissible for man to eat meat. Okay, now. You may not be a meat eater. You may choose to be a vegetarian. And I say that's okay because God didn't command you to eat meat. He just said you could. Okay. So if you choose to be a vegetarian, that's fine. Uh, however, to argue that, it's, that to be a vegetarian is morally superior to someone who eats meat, of course, is a violation of Scripture. It runs counter to scripture. So you can be a vegetarian if you choose, but to argue that it's a morally superior position to that of the meat eaters, of course, uh, is, uh, is counters exactly uh, what scripture says. Okay? So quite clearly, the Lord has given to man the privilege of eating, uh, eating animals, of eating meat. Right. Yes? What's your answer to that? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Even even great beasts like bears and things like that. You you know, for the people who are really familiar with the wilds, realize that you know if you can if you can watch the movement of animals when men come in, they tend to move out, and they'll usually uh, attack man only when they you know generally speaking only when they. Uh, yeah, when they feel threatened. Uh, and, and there may be exceptions to that rule. But as we'll see as we go through the lesson today, there are exceptions to almost every rule because of the sin nature and the corruption of creation. So, and generally speaking, we would say that the animals are fearful of men. You know, I mean, you could think about dogs too. A lot of dogs, you know, if they see you walking down the street, they just go ballistic. You know, I'm working at a house right now where these people have six dogs. <laughs> and, uh, and I'm going, who would ever want to have six dogs, you know? And uh, I like dogs, but let's be reasonable, you know. And, but some of these dogs, they just really don't like me. So when I show up at work, she's got to get them in the house, you know, because they really don't like me. But some of the others, they, you know, want to come up and let me pat them and stuff. So obviously there's some kind of, you know, general rule that's at work here. But I, you know, I couldn't be dogmatic as to, you know, the specifics of it. Dogmatic. Dog, oh, sorry. That I did not intend. I didn't intend that. Okay. All right. Okay. Well, so now this permission for man to eat creatures is and eat, uh, eat animals is, is given but there's a restriction placed upon it. What is that restriction? Okay, you don't eat it with the blood. Okay, you don't eat it with the blood because the life is in the blood. And a principle is stated here, which is stated over and over again throughout Scripture, that God makes a connection between the blood and life. 
And it gets so specific that, he, that eventually he says that's exactly why it was necessary for Christ to suffer and to bleed and to die in order, in order to offer to pour out His life for us. So God makes this correlation between the blood and life. And He wants us to think in those terms. Okay? He wants us to think in terms of the association between blood and life. And He wants it to be so pronounced in our thinking that He restricts us from even eating animals with their blood in them. And so what God is saying is though, even though one of the things that's implied here is that even though it is permissible for us to kill animals for the sake of food, He still expects us to revere the principle of life that exists not only in human beings, but in all creatures. Okay? So we have the permission to use the creatures. We have dominion over them. We're responsible to subdue them, to have dominion over them, and we have permission to kill them for the purposes of food or, uh, for example, what he did in the garden for clothing. We have that permission, and yet that is not intended to produce in us some kind of cavalier attitude towards life, towards any life. Okay? So you see something stressed here in, in this chapter that's just stressed over and over and over again is the idea of the value that God puts upon life, all life. So he begins by he begins there uh, in the beginning of the chapter by giving this blessing upon Noah and his sons and, and all the rest of the creation ultimately. Uh, he gives this blessing of procreation. And what we have here is something that really is pretty revolutionary. Because in ancient Near Eastern culture, life wasn't viewed this way. In fact, we talked when we were talking about the flood uh, a couple weeks ago, and we were talking about all these various flood traditions all over the world. And one of the things that's really outstanding about some of the flood traditions from this area of the world, from Mesopotamia, in this area, is that the flood traditions uh, that you have uh, from the Mesopotamia area uh, tend to contain an explanation for the flood that the problem was overpopulation. And that the reason that the gods flooded the world was because mankind had just gone berserk and was creating all kinds of human beings and the world was getting overpopulated. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Okay, And we discover that this philosophy or this idea of controlling the growth of population is not a new concept. It goes all the way back to ancient times and in ancient Near Eastern culture. And so, and so the, the philosophy that was present in many of these Near Eastern religions, or at least in some of these Near Eastern religions, the philosophy that was prominent was the idea that the gods were really about restraining the growth of population. And so they would do things to help restrain the growth of population. They would afflict men with, or women with sterility. Or they would institute infant mortality. Okay? And these were the means that the gods used to constrain the growth of population. The idea being that 
uh, obviously being that that life is not ultimately good. And this is where Scripture is so runs so counter to the culture of the day is that in Scripture, life is unconditionally good. That God has created it and it is good and it is a blessing and the more we have of it, the better. And that's clearly what Scripture is containing. And this idea that we have in the ancient Near Eastern cultures was so prevalent in the minds of the people that they understood that their gods even sanctioned infant and child sacrifices as a means of constraining and controlling the population. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? And so we find that Scripture not only runs counter to much of modern day philosophy, but it also runs very counter to the philosophy that was present in the day that it was written. This idea that population is to be controlled, population is to be restrained, when God is saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Okay? And so there's this tremendous value that's put on life. And I keep saying over and over again, all life. Meaning not just human life. You will notice through this passage, something like ten times God says, every living creature or all creatures or every creature over and over again in these 17 verses that we read in chapter 9 he says over and over again he stresses the idea of every creature of all creatures of every beast of every bird of every fish over and over again he's stressing this idea of the value of all life okay and so what i believe that god expects us as his children to have is this very high esteem for life, for all life. And, and I want to stress that because, because we live in a culture in which all this has got kind of turned on its head and, and, and this value of all life is no longer value of all life, it's value of the other life. And what I mean by that is, is somehow in our culture we've got it so convoluted and twisted that that now we consider the animals to be as valuable or more valuable than we are. So we're more concerned about killing a dog than we are killing an embryo, a baby in the womb. Okay. Now what is clear from this passage is that while God God values all life, he clearly values human life on an exponentially higher level, right? Because what does he do with human life that he doesn't do with the animal life in this chapter? Pardon? Well, he redeems it, but that wasn't the answer I was looking for, but you're right about that. Okay. Okay. But, but what does he institute here? Okay. But what about other humans? Capital punishment. Okay. So God institutes capital punishment in reference to killing another person but not in reference to killing the animals. And it demonstrates to us that, that mankind is exponentially on a higher level than the animals. Okay? So keep that in mind. And what we have nowadays is we're all kind of we're, we're either made all equal, <laughs> you know, the animals are equal with us and they have equal value to us, or in some cases they actually have more value than we do. Okay? 
<laughs> yeah, all, all, all life is equal, but some life more equal than others, okay? And so they make the animals more equal than man, so to speak. And that, and that idea or that philosophy permeates a great deal of what we think of today as the environmentalist movement. Now, the problem that we have as believers is that we can overreact to that. We can overreact to that distortion that some people make and we can ignore our responsibility to be conservationists and environmentalists. Quite clearly, God cares a great deal about His creation and He cares a great deal about all created life and He expects us to honor that life so that even though we have dominion over it, even though we are to subdue it, and even though we have permission to eat it, we are not to exploit it. And we are not to wantonly destroy it. Okay, And I think that's clearly implied in the passage. And to illustrate my point, just think of what God would have thought about as Noah came off the boat and he saw those two alligators coming off the boat. Presumably they weren't clean animals. And if they would, there would have been 14 of them. But if they were not clean animals, I don't think they were, the two alligators coming off the boat and Noah goes, boy, I could make a good pair of shoes out of those and my wife would sure like a new purse. And what if he had, at that moment, killed those two alligators? What would God have thought of that? Well, it doesn't tell us, does it? But I can read between the lines. God went to a lot of work to preserve those two and had He exterminated the species at that point, I think God would have frowned on that. Okay? So my point is, my point is, is that the creation is there for us to use, but it is not there for us to exploit and destroy. Okay? Well, going on from there. Yes. Yes. Okay? Uh, what he is demanding is that in an instance where an animal kills a human being, the animal is to be killed. That's what he means. So, so animals, animals are not to be allowed to kill human beings for the same reason that human beings are not allowed to kill human beings, that God wants us to, God wants us to value that life. And so his... his uh, uh, it's not a punishment on an animal because an animal doesn't sin when he kills a human being. An animal is just acting out of its nature. But the idea is that God wants to establish in our minds our dominion over the creation. So, so one of the ways he establishes that in our minds to remind us of our dominion over the creation is that if, we are, if, if a human being is destroyed by an animal, that animal is to be destroyed to demonstrate man's superiority over the animal and the value of man over the animals. Does that answer your question? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Did you say you had two questions? Yeah. The other one is, I was thinking about what the pastor said last week about the, the signs of the end of the age. When you talk about, when you talk about the moon turning dark. Mm-hmm. But in chapter 8, verse 22, it talks about the earth and the earth. But when the moon turns dark or the sun turns dark, something like that, 
there will be no longer be life. Uh, well, yeah, at, at that point, you're running into the, to the consummation of all things, the end of all things, when God brings everything to the conclusion. You'll notice that in, in eight, chapter 8, uh, verse 22, when He gives that promise, while the earth remains, He says, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, etc., will not cease. So what He's saying is that until that final end, when I actually bring things to the conclusion that I intend to bring them to, all these things will remain. His promise is not that He won't destroy the earth again because He very clearly intends to destroy the whole creation and make a new creation. So it's not that He won't destroy the earth, but that He won't destroy the earth with a flood. And that's exactly what He's promising. That's specifically what He's promising, that He won't destroy the earth with a flood. It's not a promise that God is not ultimately going to bring this creation to an end and start a new creation because He does intend to do that. And Scripture is clear on that. Okay. So when you get to Revelation, you're actually at that point where that consummation of all things is, is taking place. And so the earth begins then at that point. The whole creation at that point begins to, as He says in one place, melt with a fervent heat. So, yeah. Okay, those are good questions and those are things we have to think about. Okay. Uh, picking up here. Uh, see where I am here in my thoughts. Okay, going on now, we have another issue that comes about. What's actually happening here with the establishment of the Noahic Covenant, when Noah comes off the boat, is we are now entering into a new dispensation. Okay? Uh, we have, as, as we've talked about in, in, at other times in the class here, we have various dispensations is the term we use. We have various dispensations in human history. And by dispensations, we, the word dispensation simply means to administer or to administrate. Okay? And so when we talk about these various dispensations in human history, we talk about how God governs mankind down through human history. And He has done that very clearly in different ways at different times in human history. Okay? In, in, for the purposes of, uh, for the point of accomplishing His purposes and, and uh, effecting uh, man's redemption and salvation and man's walk and relationship with Him and all the various aspects of our relationship with God, that God administers that in different ways. So in the garden and up until the time of the fall, we have what we call the dispensation of innocence. And by that we mean that man was fully innocent. He didn't have sin. He didn't know sin. And he just walked in perfect communion with God. And so that's how man's relationship with God was carried out, was administered. Okay? But with the fall, we were introduced into the next dispensation. And that's the dispensation of conscience. Okay? So basically the way God related to man and man related to God and God governed the affairs of man uh, beginning at the fall and for the next number, uh, several, a uh, couple thousand years, is that he governed man through man's conscience. Okay. Well, just as the age of innocence end, end, ended, or the dispensation of innocence ended with man's fall, or with man's failure, excuse me, so the dispensation of, uh, or the dispensation of conscience 
ends with man's failure. It's clear that, that man cannot function in his relationship with God only based upon his conscience. And that comes, to, that comes to a graphic conclusion by the time we reach the life of Noah and it's necessary for God to destroy the creation. Okay, So then after the flood, we enter into a new dispensation. God is going to institute some new ways in which He administers His, his interaction and His relationship with man and, and, and His communication of His grace to man, and etc., etc., etc. And that is through the institution of human government. And you go, where do you see human government in Genesis chapter 9? But it is there. Because the, the, as God is describing this whole thing about the value of life, and, 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 and what, what our relationship is to life, he institutes for the first time, somebody's already mentioned it, what? Capital punishment. Okay. Now, what he's saying there, there in, uh, uh, in verse uh, uh, 6, he says, Whoever sheds a man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed, for in the image of God he made man. Now, God is establishing this principle of capital punishment. He is not, he is not instituting here some kind of free-for-all blood vengeance system. Okay? You killed my brother, I'm going to go out and murder you. Okay? And we know that because as we look at other passages in Scripture, in Leviticus and in Romans and other passages in Scripture, and even Jesus' teachings, we see that God specifically prohibits this idea of personal vengeance. Okay? He, he specifically prohibits that. So when God is establishing capital punishment here, it is not for the purposes of just allowing this free-for-all of blood vengeance. Okay, That's not what he's talking about. But rather what he's saying here is that I require of man, and you'll notice there in, in, uh, in verse 5, three times he says he requires this. Three times God says He requires capital punishment. He requires it of the animals and He requires it of man. When animals or men take a human life, God requires that that man's life be taken. Now, obviously, He's talking here about wanton murder. He's not talking about manslaughter. Uh, and that becomes clear when you get into the law in Leviticus, and etc. Not, he's not talking about manslaughter. He's talking about... Wanton murder. He's not talking about punishment, and he's obviously not talking about when somebody is put to death for their crime of putting somebody to death. Okay, but but in cases of wanton murder, God is requiring that that person be put to death. Okay, and what God is doing at this point is He is placing into the hand of society a sword. And this is, a, this is a dramatic change from the way things were before the flood. When Cain killed Abel, what did God do? He exiled him. What else did He do? He protected him. He put a stamp on him and He says, don't anybody lay a hand on him. So before the flood, capital punishment and blood vengeance both were strictly prohibited. But now we get after the flood and capital punishment is not only permitted, it is required. Blood vengeance is still prohibited as we see as we go on through Scripture. The idea of blood vengeance is still prohibited, but capital punishment is required. Now what are the reasons why 
God would ask us, require us to, to use capital punishment in the punishment of somebody who commits wanton murder. Why would he do that? Okay, because of the value of human life. So this whole idea, you see how he segues into it? He talks about life and the blessing of life and then he talks about, okay, you can eat the animals, but when you eat the animals, you don't eat them with the flesh or you don't eat them with the blood because that is the life. And then right after that, he segues right into this idea of the value of human life. And so the idea is the reason for capital punishment is the value of human life. And it is to impress upon our minds of this great inestimable inestimable gift that we have been given of life. And he wants us to think in those terms. And he wants us to realize how serious a thing it is when we wrongfully take the life of another person. And so, because of the value of human life, but then there's another reason. What is that other reason given to us in verse 6? Pardon? It's the image of God. Not only is life so incredibly valuable and precious in the eyes of God. But we have been made in His image. And when someone wantonly kills another person, he desecrates that image of God. And that is such a serious offense to God that God requires of human society that it act and take the life of the person who has done that. So as to impress upon the rest of society the value of human life and the imago Dei, the image of God. Okay? And that's what he wants to establish here. Now, people, people get pretty offended at this whole idea of capital punishment, and I, I can understand that. I mean, it's a pretty serious thing, and it's a pretty grave thing, and it's not a very pleasant thing to watch or contemplate. Okay? And so... There are arguments that are offered against the idea of capital punishment. And three of them came to my mind as I was thinking about this lesson. And the first one is is the argument that's sometimes made that capital punishment is not effective as a restraint on violence. Okay. Well, in the first place, that's pretty difficult, if not impossible, to establish scientifically one way or the other. Okay? But what is clear here is that before the flood, we had no capital punishment and violence went unrestrained and the defining characteristic of society that necessitated the flood was its violence, remember, as we read chapter 6. Okay. So, so it's clear that one of the things that, God, that is in God's mind as he institutes capital punishment is that he wants to restrain the violence that existed before the flood. He wants to control that. Okay. Now, before the flood, we were in what dispensation? The dispensation of conscience. Okay. And clearly, conscience failed to fully restrain man's violence. Right? Does that mean that we no longer listen to our conscience because it sometimes fails? No. We still have conscience, don't we? And God still expects us to listen to and respond to our conscience. It doesn't mean our conscience is perfect. But just because it's imperfect, just because it's 
sometimes ineffective doesn't mean that it's completely ineffective. And the same is true now when we, when we move into the dispensation of human government, which is primarily char- characterized by government having the sword. Romans chapter 13. Okay? And, and so even though we have human government, which includes capital punishment as the sword, even though admittedly at times it is not as effective as we would wish it would be in the restraint of violence, that does not mean that it is completely ineffective in the restraint of violence. And quite clearly, God's intention here is to restrain this whole idea of violence uh, and the uh, and, to, and to do so, he has instituted capital punishment to bring to our minds this idea of the value of human life and the Imago Dei. Another argument that's made against capital punishment is that human life is too valuable to take. Well, I mean, it's just, these are human beings. And admittedly, this guy's killed this guy. He's brutally murdered this little child. But, but we shouldn't kill him because... His life is also valuable. Okay? And that, of course, is a good argument, except that Scripture clearly teaches that the point of capital punishment is to instill in the rest of society a value for human life. So, so what we understand from Scripture then is that when society ceases to value, or excuse me, ceases to utilize capital punishment, that its value for life diminishes because the value of life is the reason we do capital punishment. Okay? So, in a society where, where we refuse to use capital punishment because we think human life is too valuable, we actually diminish the value of human life and it becomes possible for us to contemplate things like abortion and euthanasia and eugenics and things like that. And we see that in our own society today. <clears throat> another uh, another uh, criticism for capital punishment is that it tends to increase the violent disposition of the culture. Some people say, "Well, you know, you have it's like it's like the same argument they use against uh, uh, corporal punishment of children. You know, well, if you spank your children, then they'll grow up to be violent. Well, of course, we know that's not true. We spanked all five of our kids." And, uh, and I haven't seen any one of them pick up a gun yet. You know. uh, not even to hunt. <laughs> uh, but the idea is that, that if we permit capital punishment, that creates this culture of violence in the society. It only creates a culture of violence in the society if it's misused or if it's distorted or if it's uh, unjustly applied. Okay? But if it is used the way God intends for it to be used, it increases the value of life and diminishes violence in the culture. That's clearly what Genesis 9 is telling us. Now, we may say we disagree with Genesis 9. We think we know better. But this is what Genesis 9 teaches. So if we want to have a biblical worldview, this is the biblical worldview. And of course, it's borne out through the rest of Scripture. Well, we're out of time and we're not all the way through the chapter. We really haven't gotten to the Noahic Covenant and the sign of the covenant. So next week, we'll do that. So I do have study sheets for next week, but I'm not going to pass them out because we'll finish chapter... We'll finish these 17 verses and then move on to the next verses in the following week. Okay? Pardon? Oh, I already passed them out. Okay, well, hold on to them then. Hold on to them.